Hey, what's up? And welcome back, storytellers. This is your host, Yin Chang. And whether you're a longtime listener or it's your first time tuning in, I am so happy you're here. So, guess what's happening this Saturday, January 25th at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Standard Time? I am hosting 88 Cups of Tea's first ever one hour live stream write in. Okay, so what does that mean? Once a month, I'm going live for one hour as I chip away at my work in progress and you and fellow storytellers can join me from the comfort of your own home, have your laptop, notebook all set up so we all move the needle with our work in progress. Y'all know how much I love my co-working spaces. So just imagine a virtual co-working space where you see me in the live stream video typing away on my laptop or scribbling away in my notebook and we're occasionally checking in with each other and fellow storytellers in the chat box updating each other about our progress. Or you can choose to stay completely focused on your work the entire time. If you're wondering what can you work on during our live stream write-in, the possibilities are endless and we're talking about novels, scripts, treatments, beat sheets, plays, sketches, anything storytelling related that you need to make progress with. You can choose to focus on your own word count goal for your story or a specific page count. Or if you're like me, I'm just gonna focus on the one hour time limit and power through as much as I can with my own creative work. I know there's some storytellers who are choosing to focus specifically on things like story mapping or character development, editing, plot points. So you make this your own thing so that it works best for you. And that's what I love most about this. So these monthly live stream write-ins are exclusive for our Patreon family and specifically patrons in the green tea tier, the oolong tea tier, and poor tea tier. If you're currently in our chrysanthemum tea tier and want to join our live write-in, all you have to do is edit your tier to one of the three that I mentioned earlier. For the rest of our community, our patrons' generous contributions greatly impact 88 Cups of Tea in a way that truly helps to sustain us so that our entire community of storytellers can continue to consume the content that me and my team work really hard to produce year-round. If you'd love to join me for this live stream write-in and also receive the awesome benefits that come along with your tier, head over to patreon.com slash 88 cups of tea and sign up for either the green tea tier, oolong tea tier, or poor tea tier before the live stream event. Again, the live stream write-in is happening this Saturday, January 25th at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Jot down the date and time in your planner so you don't forget. I am so excited about this and cannot wait to see you at our first ever write-in. Now, before we get into today's episode featuring Grace Lynn, I am thrilled to present the following segment featuring critically acclaimed author and two-time Edgar Award finalist Lamar Giles brought to you by Epic Reads. Hey everyone, I am so excited to have Lamar Giles with us today. Lamar, I am so excited to have you on the podcast. We did a little bit of pre-chat before we're recording and you're just an awesome human being. I'm excited for our listeners to get to know you and who you are and your projects. You have a book coming out. I'm really excited about this. Yes, I do. First, thank you for having me. And the new book is called Not So Pure and Simple. It's my first contemporary novel, and it's going to be out January 21st. Not So Pure and Simple is about this kid named Dell who joins a purity pledge at his church because there's a girl he likes in it. 
he just so happens to be the only kid in the pledge who's allowed to take sex ed at his high school. And he becomes a bit of a go-between taking questions from the kids at church and bringing them back answers that they couldn't get from their parents or the clergy. And it snowballs into a bit of a controversy in this town. It's a funny book, but it also tackles things like toxic masculinity, uh, misogyny, double standards. I think it's something that people are going to have a good time with in a timely fashion. What was the inspiration for this? Where was the story idea? What made you want to tackle this project next, especially knowing it's so different from anything else you've ever written? To be honest, I started working on this back in like 2015. So this is the book I've taken the longest amount of time on. And for a long time, I couldn't really find what I was trying to say. It was a funny premise. This kid joins a purity pledge because he likes a girl in it. But I couldn't really find the meat of what that meant and why it would be relevant. And then to be frank, what happened was in 2017, the Me Too movement, the hashtag came. I was reading through some of the stories of the horrible things that happened to people, particularly perpetrated by men. And conversations with women, my family and my friends, a message I heard over and over was, women already knew about this. It's the men who are sort of having the fog lifted. And in order to prevent these horrible things from happening, men need to take a more proactive role in talking to men, particularly young men. It's in that moment that it sort of clicked, like I have a tool here where I can maybe start some of those conversations in a way that anybody could be receptive to. And certainly the premise starts in a humorous way. I'm primarily here to entertain, but I use that humor to make an avenue into more serious topics and hopefully things that can start conversations with anybody who's reading the book, boy, girl, non-binary, and maybe talk about some of the ways we can stop the toxic behavior that largely is pervasive among men. The horrible thing to say is I have many family members and friends who have experienced either sexual harassment, sexual assault. Those stories came to light for me in recent years. There are things I didn't know. Obviously, it hits home if you know the person. But I'll be honest, even reading some of the accounts from people I've never met in my life, I was horrified. The example that came to me immediately was like, I think about when we talk about racism, and if there's a white person who suddenly like, you know, I, I never dealt with what you dealt with, but hearing your story, I can empathize and I understand. And I felt like that's some of what I was feeling reading through some of the accounts during the height of the Me Too hashtags and social media posts. I just think my gender is largely responsible for that pain. And I try to think back on me growing up, like if there's any time when I was just part of the problem in terms of my silence or, you know, laughing at some of the dumb things that boys talked about. I think about even our president trying to write off the horrible things he said as locker room talk. I've not been involved in that sort of locker room talk, but I certainly have been in places where I should have spoken up when something rude or horrible was said, and I didn't. I'm trying to be better and not ever have that weakness again. Lamar, thank you for that, and thank you for doing the work that you do. What is the proudest moment in your career? It's a low-key thing, if that's okay. It's not anything public that people would know about, but... I remember doing a school visit, and this was maybe two years ago, and a young man came up to me, and he started to talk about how he'd read my first novel, Fake ID, and he's a young black boy, and he's so happy that there's a book with a protagonist that looks like him, and and he burst into tears. 
and he's telling me that he wanted to be a writer. He's only 14 at the time. And and I, I, I remember feeling what he was feeling. You know, he's talking about he wants to be a writer and he didn't think there was really an avenue for him. Um, and he said people in his family discouraged him from pursuing it for those very reasons. They didn't think there was any room for for black men to do this sort of work in any serious capacity. And so the fact that he felt encouraged by me and I was able to actually buy him some writing books and told him when he writes that first novel, let me know and I'll do what I can to help him. So like that, that connection, as much as I've been all over the place, been across the globe, I'll never forget that interaction. And I think that kid's gonna be graduating in a year or so. And so I'm gonna be checking on him to see that he's still writing, but I loved interacting with him. Oh, that's incredible. And also how important it is for young writers to have mentors and to know that things are possible, their dreams are possible, and to know that someone has their back and actually looks out for them and cares about them makes a world of a difference. What are some small manageable steps you would advise writers to take every week towards accomplishing their writing goals? Oh, as far as small steps every week, I would say at the very least, try to set a page goal. Okay, and it can be a small goal. And the thing is, the page goal you set, if it's three pages, just don't beat yourself up if you only get one page, because if you shot for three and you got one, you've done more than a lot of people who say they want to write. One page a day gets you a novel in a year. So if you can manage anywhere from one to three pages, it's a good chance you can do two novels in a year. And that's a really small segment of writing that you can work in every single day. Gosh, you just broke it down so plain and simple and it just hit me. I'm just like, wait, oh yes, you can have one to two books a year. So inspiring. Lamar, you're awesome. Please tell everyone where they can find you online to say hello. Absolutely. On Twitter, I am at LR Giles. And on Instagram, I'm at Lamar Giles, lowercase. And on Facebook, I'm LR Giles Writer. And we're back, storytellers. I hope you enjoyed Lamar's segment as much as I did. And be sure to stay tuned at the end of this episode to learn more. On to today's episode, Grace Lynn is a New York Times bestselling author and illustrator who won the Newbery Honor for her book, Where the Mountain Meets the Moon. Her other award-winning books include When the Sea Turned to Silver, Starry River of the Sky, The Year of the Dog, and her upcoming novel, Mulan Before the Sword. Grace and I kick off the conversation with how she found her passion for writing and illustrating children's books and the steps she took to turn her dream into a thriving career. She gives us a behind-the-scenes look into her TEDx talk where she highlights the significance of multicultural literature on personal identity and development. She shares an exciting snapshot of her upcoming novel, Mulan Before the Sword, that sets the stage for Disney's upcoming live-action movie, Mulan. We then dive into her research process and how she managed the book's tight deadline, all while giving us crucial advice on how to juggle deadlines while staying true to your story. Later in the conversation, we discuss plotting strong character arcs, why writing retreats are crucial to Grace's livelihood as a writer, and you'll be happy to hear that we also touch on finances in this conversation. Storytellers, be sure to catch Grace's Instagram story takeover by heading over to Instagram.com slash 88 cups of tea right after you listen to our episode. Now let's jump right in. Hey, everyone. We have Grace Lynn with us today. Grace, how are you? 
Good. Thanks so much for having me on. We're so excited to have you on and get chatting. And I'm, I'm really pumped because I know that you have an exciting book coming up. And when your episode releases, your book is going to release in about three weeks. So it's releasing on February 11th before the sword. So I'm excited to get into this and how this came to be. But before we get there, can we please jump into your earliest memory of storytelling? Oh, wow. My earliest memory of storytelling. That's a hard one. I know that my earliest memory of having a book read to me was The Little House by Virginia Lee Burton. And it wasn't anybody reading it to me. Back then, they had books on tape, but it wasn't on tape. It was on these floppy records. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so I had this floppy record that would read the book, you know, and it'd be like, The Little House. And then like, ding and then you're supposed to turn the page every time it went ding and I remember I listened to this record so many times that the record started to warp and so when I started listening to it at the end it started saying like the little house (laughs) (laughs) it was all warped and now when I read that book to my own daughter like I'm always tempted to go the little house because that's how I remember it from there how often was reading encouraged in your home Uh, well reading was really encouraged in my home my parents were immigrants from Taiwan they were not big fiction readers or anything like that but they really believed in studying and they really believed in books and I remember we would go to the library the public library almost every day after school like right after dinner or right before dinner and we would like spend time there and I would just pick whatever book was available as long as I had a book in my hand my parents were happy they they didn't really look to see what books I was reading <laughs> I think they just thought because it was a book. It was educational. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's awesome. That's true. That's true. You know, I think most of us usually fell in love with storytelling or our earliest memories of storytelling is from reading. How then did you transition into you wanting to write or illustrate your own books? When did that come about? I always loved books. I grew up in upstate New York where we were pretty much the only minority family in the area. So I always kind of had this like odd sense of isolation. So in a lot of ways, the characters in books were my friends or books became my friends in a lot of ways. So mm-hmm. I always, always loved books. And I loved books so much that whenever there was a project in school, I always made a book. Like, you know, we would be studying the Vikings and other people would build a ship, right? A Viking ship or make a Viking hat. And I always made like a book about the Vikings or like <laughs> we were studying about the constellations and people would make like these dioramas, you know, <laughs> with like uh, pinprick lights and things like that. And I would write a book about the constellation. So so I think I always loved books. Even my young age, I love the idea of making books. And so I'm not really sure when that started, except that I feel like it was always kind of in my blood as soon as I started to love books, which was pretty early. I think the biggest thing though was realizing that you could make books for a living. (laughs) Like that could be a job, like that could be actually something that I could do for a lifelong career or a job. That was a big thing that I had to discover. When was that discovery for you? I actually talk about this in my book, The Year of the Dog, which is kind of a memoir. So when I was in um, 
I think fifth or sixth grade, I entered this big national book contest where if you wrote and illustrated your own book, and if you won first place, they would actually publish your book. And so I wrote and illustrated my book and I sent it in. I did not win first place, but I did win fourth place. And with fourth place, I also won a cash prize of a thousand dollars. And I was so excited when I got a thousand dollars. I was like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. And I was like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be, I'm gonna do this forever. I'm gonna be an author and illustrator forever. I'm gonna be rich. <laughs> like uh, that was a lesson I did not learn <laughs> early enough. <laughs> oh my gosh. I'm just like, dang, I can't help but imagine like what did third place get? What did second place get? Like that is like a legitimate contest then. Well, it was a legitimate contest because a couple of years ago, I was really curious. I was like, who won first place in that contest? Yes. <laughs> I looked it up on the internet and the first place a winner got their book published. They got $5,000. And I found out the winner was a person that anybody who's a child will know is a author called Dave Pilkey, or you might know him better as the author and illustrator of Captain Underpants. <laughs> you gotta be joking me. Are you serious? <laughs> yep. He won first. I tell people this story. I'm like, I lost to Captain Underpants. <laughs> that is so awesome. Are you kidding? Oh my goodness. And lucky him that he was in the same contest with you. Okay. Let's put it that way. That's awesome. <laughs> Everybody's the same age, is it? Or, or there's an age range. I can't remember, but he was in the upper end of the age range and I was in the lower end of the age range. Also so interesting to see that there's so many of us who had this passion really early on, actually, you know, I think there's a lot to be said about being a late bloomer, but there's also something to be said when you have a lifelong passion for something as well. Yes, it's so crazy that you both entered that contest and ended up being in this world still. <laughs> it's just incredible. If you don't mind, I would love to ask where upstate New York? Sure. Uh, I grew up in um, the probably the it was Utica, New York. That's where I lived in New Hartford, right next to Utica, New York. It's very different. Very different. Vacationing versus living, I completely understand. The vacationing side, it's very beautiful, right? Because, mm -hmm. you know, you can go and you can leave. But I could see how growing up, it could feel very isolating because even now, when I go with my girlfriend to kind of get away and escape, there's not many people that look like us still. Yeah. It's a very different thing. I mean, it's gotten better, I think, over the years because uh, Utica has become an area that is accepting a lot of refugees. Oh. It's become like kind of a refugee resettlement area. And so they, so it's, it's getting a lot better. But when I was growing up, you know, and also times were just really, really different. I actually do not speak Chinese. At least I've tried to take lessons. I don't speak Chinese very well <laughs> in a way that anybody can understand me. And the reason why is because where I grew up in upstate New York, the school actually came to my parents parents and said, please don't speak to them in Chinese. It will delay their language skills, you know? And so my parents always spoke to us in English, you know, now we know it's completely different, but it just shows you like so much has changed in the time when I was a child to the time now. And back then the whole idea was really trying to fit in, in a homogeneous way. Like my father would watch and see what car the neighbor got. And then he would go out and buy the same car, you know, <laughs> like it's like the survivalist uh, mentality when you think about it. I guess that you guys don't bump into as many issues or problems if yeah. people were to zone in on you guys. Because I mean, this is only from my own experience. 
where I grew up actually speaking Taiwanese, like Taiwanese, oh, not even Mandarin. Uh-huh. It was Taiwanese uh-huh. and then Mandarin from my grandma. I learned from my ama, from my dad's side, my grandma. And I was in Flushing, Queens during that time. So then I went to a preschool where you, you only speak Mandarin. No one really understood my Taiwanese. It's funny. So I had a, I was forced to then learn Mandarin to assimilate <laughs> with uh, Mandarin speaking preschoolers. I remember then they moved us to Long Island. I was thrown into ESL class. They were like, you know, people don't really understand what she's saying. So, but she's got to mm-hmm. learn English. And that's when my family's like, oh, okay. So then they sent me, I think, I can't remember if it was a year, a year and a half or two years of ESL. And then that is when I ended up forgetting Chinese because... Oh, how interesting. It's, it's crazy what our brains are capable of as kids. Like, I think I wanted to not remember Chinese. I wanted to switch it off so that I wouldn't get picked on because I would get picked on a lot. You could feel like you're pointed out Mm -hmm. and you know that you're different and you're very aware. It's even double the times more isolating. So for you, even though you spoke fluent English growing up near Utica, were you aware? Because I always find it very fascinating what age we're aware I think it's really interesting because what you were talking about, feeling isolated, to me, I feel like all the people who are attracted to the creative arts, they seem to have this common, I don't want to say trauma because it's not exactly trauma, but they have this this common desire that or, or pain that they've had when they're younger. And it's usually this feeling of isolation, this desire of wanting to be seen for who they are. So I think that's really interesting. And probably, uh, I think it is a common thing <laughs> that we all, we all want to be seen for who we are now, which is why we're all attracted to the arts. Yes. But for me, me, it was so obvious to me that I was different than my classmates because my whole school, except for my sisters, was white. You have to be blind not to notice <laughs> that I was Asian. That was a big problem for me because back then the way we dealt with race was we just didn't talk about it, right? So whenever the issue of my race came up, it was always like really quickly shut down. Like I remember in fourth grade, a boy saying like, after I'd answered a question correctly, a boy like saying, oh, she only knows that because she's Chinese. Again, that's what he meant to say. But my teacher completely cut him off. I was like, George, nope, nope. And then he like, she shut him down. And then she like continued on with the lesson as if nothing had happened. And so it was this unspoken rule that we did not mention my race. And, you know, back then that the idea was that we were trying to create these like colorblind kids. But I often talk about how, you know, in a room of white faces, I did not feel colorblind. In fact, I kind of felt like I had this secret that everyone knew, but we didn't talk about. Mm. I kind of felt like there was something wrong with me. And it was so bad that we couldn't even mention it, you know? So, mm, wow. Is that something that you were able to talk about at home? Um, No, you know, (laughs) I don't know if this is an Asian thing or my parent thing or, but you know, we still have very difficult time talking about feelings, you know, (laughs) like, I remember one year, I feel like uh, one year the teacher like your homework assignment is to tell your parents that you love them. And I was like, no way. (laughs) It was just such a foreign concept to me. Like we just didn't talk about feelings, you know, like that was just not what we did when I was younger. And it wasn't because we didn't feel that it was just like, I'm not sure if it's an Asian thing, but I interpreted it as it like, I just feel like they, maybe it was like their parents never gave them the tools to how to talk about these things. So, you know, they didn't give me the tools either. But I feel like a lot of immigrant families are similar, like where they don't talk about these things. I mean, even, uh, I'm sorry, I'm blanking on her name, but the snowboarder, the father, like you could tell he was proud, but you know, it was so uneffusive. (laughs) Yes, it's very hard to express it. I think 
my dad, because he's from Taiwan, especially being male, a very traditional male, he, yeah, was not really used to saying, I love you, like super young, but then he's now like very, he'll say, I love you to my sisters, like my baby sisters. So it's different because I'm the oldest daughter. So it's different with me. But then my mom, she's from Malaysia. My mom's very expressive. She'll she'll get pissed if I don't say I love you back. She expects that I love you. Like she's like, you know, you guys never tell me like how much you appreciate me. I I sacrifice my life. Blah blah blah. Everything I do. Well, that's very typical, I think. And then she's like, and no one says I love you, mom. But everyone's like, I love you, dad. Like you know, I'm like in the corner, like garbage. Like so, she's very expressive to the point where I'm like, oh my god, you're so dramatic. She's like, don't call me dramatic. I hope you have a child like you. So yeah, my mom is very polar opposite of most mothers I've met from Asia. It just goes to show that there's just so many layers to being Asian. I mean, like, yeah, true. like we're used to the stereotype, but it just shows that the stereotype there's is... So, exactly. It's not a monolith, right? It's <laughs> no. like, every, there's so many different layers. There's so many different people, so many different stories and backgrounds. Absolutely. So that just proved that point. So that was awesome. <laughs> Thank you, Grace. So I, I'm really curious, too, because I was reading in your bio that you ended up going to Rhode Island School of Design, which mm-hmm. is an amazing school it's the one of the top design schools art schools in the world was this something that you because like you know you felt found that love of wanting to create books any opportunity that you had during school growing up then it just was infused in your brain of thinking okay I'm going to become like an artist I'm going to continue this path or was it how how did that Rhode Island School of Design come about? It basically was that. I mean, I won that contest in like fifth or sixth grade, and that really sealed the deal for me. I was like, I want to be a children's book illustrator, a real artist. At that point, I was really, I loved the writing, but I also really love, I think I loved the art more at that point. And I wanted to be a children's book illustrator. And so I went to art school specifically to go for children's book illustration. Uh, Rhode Island School of Design is where a lot of the greats had gone, like Chris Van Alsberg and David Wiesner and, and Dave McCauley, like these really big, well-known children's book illustrators were all associated with the Rhode Island School of Design. So that's why I really wanted to go there. Of course, to the horror of my parents, but <laughs> <laughs> but to give them great credit, even though they really did not understand what I was doing, they supported my decision. I do want to revert back and a little bit because I was reading in your bio as well that you gave a TEDx talk about mm-hmm. the windows and mirrors of your child's bookshelf. Can you give mm-hmm. us a little bit of a snapshot of what that's about? And we'll make sure to link it in your show notes page so that people can watch it. So a while back, I gave a TEDx talk called The Windows and Mirrors of Your Child's Bookshelf. And basically, it's playing a little bit off of Redeem Sims Bishops, just in case you don't know, she's a very well-respected and well-known children's librarian who kind of coined the metaphor of windows and mirrors for books, the idea that a book can be a mirror so or a window. So when you read a book, you can either see yourself in it or you get a window into somebody else's life. And using that metaphor, I talked about my own life, about how, how when I was younger, I basically never saw anybody that looked like me in a book. I never saw anyone Asian ever. <laughs> and so like I always kind of missed out on seeing a mirror and kind of what that would have meant to me What if I had seen characters that looked like me in a book and what that means to your child if they don't see anybody that looks like themselves in a book. 
and also what it means to children who always see themselves in books that that they need to be able to see children from other cultures or people that don't look like them so that they understand that anybody can be a hero. I mean, I think that's what it really comes down to is that for a long time, because all the stories have been white heroes, children of other races have grown up feeling like they cannot be heroes. And uh, we're starting to change that now. And I really think it's an important thing. So I hope people listen to the talk. I, I'm much more eloquent than that. <laughs> we'll definitely make sure that it's linked up in your show notes page. Our amazing show notes manager, Rachel, when she hears this part, she'll make sure to link it up. I'm curious because this is something that you've had brewing in your mind for a very long time. It's just from lifelong observations. And then so then leading into an actual TED talk, was that something that you then approached them to be like, I have this this incredible talk prepared and I'd love to audition for it. Like, how did that come about? It didn't really work that way for me. I think I was extremely lucky. I talk quite a bit about diversity in a lot of my talks, especially to like teachers and in conferences where I talk a lot about how these books, The Windows and Mirrors, they nurture self-confidence and they nurture empathy and why they're so important. These kind of books that are windows and mirrors on your child's bookshelf. And one of the organizers of the TEDx conference, I think, had heard me give one of these talks and uh, reached out to me and said, would you be interested in doing a TEDx talk for us? And so I thought about it and I said, sure, yes. I mean, at first, I was a little hesitant, honestly, because it is quite an undertaking. Like I, I do give a lot of talks, but a TED talk is different because they want you to take what I usually give like an hour or like a 40 minute talk. They want me to bring it down to like 10 minutes you know? oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then you have to have it all memorized you know like it's a bringing it to a much higher level <laughs> oh my gosh you know what it reminds me of like an actual children's book where they say brevity is key yeah. and you have to just focus only on the message that like you know specific words that could just zone in on the exact message you're trying to tell how I mean how difficult was that it was difficult, but I think it was good difficult. Like it was a really good challenge. I'm really glad that I did it. I feel like it really changed the way that I do my public speaking and it made me much more confident. I mean, after you do a, a TEDx talk in front of this humongous crowd with a speech with like nothing in front of you, like it's just you, like you're, you're so bare. I, I feel like after that, I feel like, okay, I can do pretty much that is true. That is true. That's so crazy because I do know so many writers that I've had a pleasure of chatting with. A lot of them usually have fear yeah. of public speaking. So it's not very common where I come across authors who are very comfortable with public speaking. So is this something that you've had to practice over the years as you're going into different schools? Oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> I am definitely not a natural public speaker. That's why the TEDx talk was so good. And it came at a good time because I had been building up higher and higher and higher. And, and I still get nervous when I go and talk, but it's not the kind of nerves that stop me. It's the kind of nerves that are like, okay, but you've done this before, you'll be fine kind of thing. So it's a pretty empowering kind of thing now for me. But no, it definitely was not anything that came to me easy. Like there are some people who are just natural public speakers who can go up and just like riff and talk, almost like a stand-up comic, right? I'm not that kind. I have to have like a prepared speech. <laughs> like my way of speaking is definitely kind of like the violin recital, you know, where you practice and practice and practice, and then you go on the concert and then you can play it, even though you you kind of have this out of body experience. You've practiced it so much, you're fine, you know. <laughs> like, do you mind me asking you if you have any advice to share with our listeners? 
who may be preparing for a talk or just like nervous as heck and and just even want to decline invitations to speak like how you know any advice for you to pass on to them even going down to the actual technicalities of memorizing how you memorize or just the the mental preparation the worst advice i ever got <laughs> which i followed early on and then later i realized it was not good advice they said you know don't memorize your speech or else you'll sound canned when you give it you know or you'll sound too rehearsed or you'll sound forced or you'll sound fake like so i was like oh, okay don't practice your speech so i think that works for some people <laughs> <laughs> but for me, I tend to give the same speech over and over and over again for years, right? <laughs> like, and that might seem to some people like horrible. I feel like the more I give the speech, the better I get and the more I'm able to actually reach people because I'm so well practiced with the speech. I'm not thinking about talking. I'm just thinking about what I'm actually talking about, you know? And so my best advice is just to practice, 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 like, and like practice, like all those cheesy things, practice in front of a mirror, practice in front of your, your friends practice. And I feel like there's no such thing as over preparing, you know, like there's a part of me that's like, uh, when I practice, I'm like, Oh, I bet you so-and-so doesn't have to do this. And they probably just go in and you know what they probably do, but that's okay. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> Everybody's different. Yeah. That's the thing that can be in your control is to practice it. And I guarantee if you practice enough, when you go up there, even if you have an out of body experience, you don't like you forget the words, it'll come out just because you practice it so much. It's like, like I said, like the violin recital. <laughs> oh, I love that. Thank you so much, Grace. That's so generous and kind of you to share that. Thank you. I know it's going to mean a lot to the listeners. I would love to jump into your book that is coming out. I can't even imagine how excited you must feel. So it's Before the Sword, releasing February 11th. Can you please give us a snapshot in your own words of what we can expect? So this book is, uh, I'm very excited about it. This is kind of my first foray into something a little bit more, I guess, mainstream. So this book is actually an original prequel to Disney's live action Mulan movie that's coming out in March. So what happened is that the wonderful people at Disney reached out to me and they said, you know, we're looking to have somebody write a companion novel for the movie. And would you be interested? And I was, and they sent me the script. They were really great. They let me have so much creative freedom. So I was able to write all the interesting backstory about some of the new characters and the old characters in the Milan movie. So it's kind of like the most exciting, <laughs> I would say it's it's like a fan fiction dream. <laughs> yeah, I would say so. So you're saying that they gave you the script to the actual movie coming out just so that you can understand yes. what everyone's going to see. So you have accurate information to then know and start brainstorming how you can create the backstory for that. Mm-hmm. Can we unpack and break it down to first how Disney reached out to you and how they selected you? Sure. So I'm not really sure wh- how, um, I mean, I just heard it through my agent and I'm not exactly sure why they chose me, but my educated guess is probably because I feel that I'm pretty well known in the market, <laughs> I guess, for writing Asian books, especially kind of like folktale, fairy tale books. My book, um, Where the Mountain Meets the Moon, won the Newbery Honor in 2000. 10 and my book uh, when the sea turned to silver was a national book award finalist in 2016 and they're both asian folktale fairy tale novels and they're kind of like these epic sagas but they're very rooted in chinese mythology and chinese myths and chinese lore 
So I'm pretty sure that probably gave them a big heads up that I could probably take on a folk hero like Mulan and that I probably was pretty well versed in the culture that they were looking to have depicted in the story. So I'm pretty sure that's probably what put me on, on the radar for this kind of book. So my guess is because of everything that I've seen from the movie and because I've seen the script, they're trying to be much more authentic to Chinese culture and which the Disney animation as uh, I loved that when I was a kid, I loved the Mulan animation, but there's a lot of things in it that are just not culturally correct. (laughs) And I think they realized that if they were going to remake this movie live action, they had to be much more culturally correct. And I think that they wanted that for their accompanying books and things like that. So I think that's the biggest thing that put me on the radar. There's different versions of Mulan stories. So So many. (laughs) Yeah. And that's the thing where then how much freedom do you have in going in and making up and filling in a lot of the imagination versus having to really base your writings off of the already written text about Mulan stories, you know what I mean? Like versus Mm -hmm. research. Yeah. And I think the fact that there are so many Mulan stories is actually what makes it so freeing. I talk about this a lot about my, in my other books, because I take a lot of Asian, mainly Chinese folk tales, and I kind of rewrite them and I kind of massage them and, and change them. So it's more interesting to like an Asian American sensibility. And I kind of do the same thing here. It's my philosophy when it comes to folk tales in general, you know, every time a storyteller tells a story, they change it, right? So like Mulan has been told time and time again, and it's been told in so many different ways. And in fact, even the Disney animation version is just another retelling, right? And so to me, I just felt like, oh, okay, great. I'm just going to add to that chapter, or I guess it wouldn't be chapter, that shelf <laughs> of Mulan stories, you know? I kind of felt a fair amount of freedom, the same kind of freedom that I feel with when I do my other books. I mean, there's always a part of me that's like, oh, people aren't going to like that I changed this. But I also feel like that's how these stories stay alive. When I talk about changing the folk tales for my other books, I often talk about how in Chinese temples, they burn paper money, the ghost money. So that's one of the ways that they honor their ancestors. They burn these this paper money with the idea that their ancestors get to use this ghost money up in the other world, right? And as time has gone on, we still burn this ghost money. But if you've noticed, we burn all kinds of crazy things now. <laughs> like there's paper iPads that we burn. <laughs> paper fast food. We burn, yes. you know, like, we burn like, you know, paper cars for like grandpa to have in, in like up in the other world, you know, like, and I think it's the idea that we keep these old traditions, but we have to let them change with the time. You know, like that's how these traditions stay alive is that we keep them alive by letting them change and grow. And that's how I feel about these folk tales. And that's how I feel about Mulan too. Like we want the story of Mulan to continue to live. You know, we have to let it adapt to our time too. But at the same time, there's a fine line. We want it to adapt to our time, but we also don't want it to make it inauthentic where it's not even an Asian story anywhere, like where it doesn't have the roots for it. Like I always talk about how it's like a plant, you know, you want to nurture the plant, you let it grow, you let it become what it wants to be, but it's not like creating a whole different plant. How much did this mean to you writing this story? Uh, It was pretty meaningful because when I thought about it, I was like, you know what? Mulan was actually, when I looked back and I really thought about it, Mulan was actually the first Asian heroine I ever saw 
that was embraced by American mainstream. And that's pretty important. I'm almost embarrassed to think about how old I was <laughs> when I watched Mulan because I was not the target audience. I think I was already graduated from college. Mulan was not a formative heroine for me, you know, because like I didn't see her when I was younger. I'd be like, I could be that. But it was formative in the idea of like, oh, look, the United States can embrace an Asian heroine. They can embrace somebody Asian. You know, they can do it. We just have to hope that they'll do it more often. <laughs> Absolutely. And I mean, just to even be a part of this story, part of this thread that you're carrying this on, allowing more younger generation of Americans to see, again, to continue on as seeing people who look like us that could be heroes and heroines is incredible. I think that's just honorable place to be, you know, when you think about it. It's a really meaningful place to be, I think. Yes. And so I'm really grateful to, to Disney for thinking of me and giving me the opportunity. My gosh, how... Okay, how is your family feeling about this? I wonder if they expected this for you to put out a version of Mulan out in America, like back in the day when you were saying, I'm going to Rhode Island School of Design. You know, like I wonder how much of this they thought was going to happen. Or like, you know, I think a lot of fear is thinking that America would never change, but seeing like, you know, they're slowly embracing different cultures now. Like, how's that for your family? I think I'm, I'm so curious about how much it means to them. It's interesting because I think even the Mulan thing, they still don't quite <laughs> understand what I do. <laughs> so this is the story I tell to explain my parents. And I mean this in the most loving way, right? I mentioned how my book, When the Sea Turned to Silver, was National Book Award finalist. On the night of the National Book Awards, it's actually quite a big deal. It's kind of like the Oscars of books, right? So you get all dressed up in your black tie outfit and you like go in a, and your publisher sends you in like a fancy car. And uh, so I was in the car with my husband and there was another another finalist in the car. And he's like, oh, I'm so excited. I got a whole table for all my extended family. There's, we're like, there's like, they filled the table. I got like 10 people rooting for me. And I remember thinking like, oh man, I should have invited my parents. <laughs> and I was like, oh man, I didn't even think that they'd want to come, right? Like, and I was like, I should have invited them. And I was like, oh, well. And then because as an author, you kind of learn this trick, like never look at your reviews online unless you're feeling really good. <laughs> so because I was feeling so, I was feeling, I was still feeling pretty good. I went to my Amazon page just to see, you know, oh, I wonder what people are saying. And there's a new review on there. And it's from my dad. <laughs> and it says four out of five stars better than I expected. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> oh my God. I love your relationship oh, with your parents. Oh, now it makes sense why I forgot to ask. <laughs> oh my God. And what makes it even funnier is like a week later, I talked to my parents, right? And I'm like, oh, dad, I saw that you gave me four out of five stars on Amazon. Didn't you like it? He's like, yeah, I loved that. That was very good. I, that's why I gave you four out of five stars. Four is very good. And my mom overhears this and she's like, you gave it four out of five stars? That could hurt the sales. You have to give it five stars. <laughs> so he went back and he gave it five stars, but it still says better than I expected. <laughs> oh my God, your dad is hilarious. <laughs> That's kind of my parents in a nutshell. Like they're always kind of afraid that it's all going to collapse on me right. at any moment. So it's like, oh, that would hurt sales. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> oh my god so that basically sums up how they are and how yes. they've been feeling okay so now i go to weave back a little bit into the writing of before the sword what do you think was the most challenging part of writing that story what was the most difficult i mean anything it could be emotional side it could be craft it could be like a scene that you're stuck with dialogue anything that threw you for a loop that we like most people don't know about i would love to hear so it would probably be the deadline <laughs> oh gosh wait how much time did you have i can't remember exactly so i'm a very slow writer my last novel came out in 2016 and i had this other novel that you know like it takes me quite a while to write a book Right. And so what, that was the one hang up that I had when they came to me because they're like, it has to come out before the movie. You know, like there is no wiggle room on this deadline. And I'm not used to that. <laughs> so it was very challenging for me to get it down. <laughs> but in some ways, I think it was really good. Um, before this, I've been using like this old antiquated version of Microsoft Word, like from 1988, right? <laughs> like I just always used, used it. Like it was like this, like, it's kind of like this almost half dead pony, but I'd be like, keep riding it, right? <laughs> because it's still getting me places. But for this book, I actually learned Scrivener, which is a writing tool. Yes, we love Scrivener here. Yes, yes, yes. So this is the first book I wrote using Scrivener. And I was like, oh my gosh, <laughs> why didn't I ever use this before? And I was like, <laughs> I could write books a lot faster. You know, I'm so analog, like even my art, I'm not very computer savvy, which is to my detriment. But before I was just like paper, you know, like, and I would have sticky notes and I'd have really like 18 copies of it, you know, like, like writing everything. <laughs> and then Scrivener just, I was like, oh, it was like a real eye opener for me. I was like, oh, and I'm like, and my editor were like, oh, does this mean you'll be able to write faster now? And I was like, I think so. And they're like, yay. <laughs> oh my gosh. But also talk about pressure. I mean, this, you know, it's funny, like. I didn't really hear about the whole deadline being an actual issue until more recently because I don't have a published book myself, as listeners know. Like, I love talking to you all, hearing your stories, how you go about it, how you approach it, because it's like preparing me as well. I'm learning from you. And the thing is, I think the more authors that I've met lately are talking about how deadlines really are a situation. Like, it's caused so much stress. And mm -hmm. I'm not even kidding. Like, it affected their health. Like, yeah. you know, sometimes people end up in the <laughs> hospital and it's like really stressful. So, I mean, if there's any like words you can pass on to those, they're feeling like, oh my gosh, they're literally about to implode because they can't make it. I really appreciate deadlines. There's two things I was thinking when you were asking. One is like that whole, it's like that Chinese proverb where it's like, you know, to make a diamond, the coal has to go through great pressure. You know, I feel like I need that deadline sometimes or else I, it won't force me to push it all the way through, you know, like, I'll just keep fiddling and fiddling and fiddling. And the truth is, for writers like me, if I don't have the deadline, it'll never be done, because I can keep fiddling and fiddling forever. And the truth is, there comes a point where you're not making it better, you're just making it different. <laughs> and somebody needs to shut you down. <laughs> <laughs> that's really the deadline does <laughs> for me. Have you ever been to a point where you like know that in your gut, oh my gosh, if I could just have two more weeks or like three more weeks, I can actually make it better, not different, but actually better. Every situation is different, but in general, most of the time, at least in children's books, I mean, that's mainly where I, that's, I write middle grade novels. So the deadline, they're usually a lot more understanding. And usually if you need th two or three weeks, two or three weeks, I think, I mean, the truth is they can't publish the book without you. Right? <laughs> so I think 
take the time that you need if you need if you really but be honest but that's the whole thing you have to be honest with yourself like truly brutally honest do you really need this time like if you need and if you truly really need that time then i think you should take it because they can't publish the book without you and that's 3 weeks late and uh, maybe and this is a season but it's will suck forever <laughs> if you print it before it's ready, right? So that's helpful because I think there's so many, especially debut authors or early on or are not yet published authors who are so afraid. Like, you know, if they sit, yeah. if they ask for the time that they need. It's kind of like what I was saying about the, the folk tales too. You know, there's a line, right? You ask for what you need. The folk tales can change. But at the same time, you want to be authentic to the folk tales. At the same time, you have to be authentic to really brutally honest. Do you really need that time? Or or are you just scared? Is it something else that's fueling your desire for more time? Is it fear, just the fear of, of getting it out there? Is it the fear of failure, the fear, fear of success? You know, like you have to figure out what is holding you back. And if it really is, what's holding you back is that you just need more time to make this book what it needs to be, then definitely take that time. But it's hard because that's like, you need a therapist too to tell you, um, you're just procrastinating because... <laughs> No, that is so helpful. And I love that you also gave tips on like how you can figure out when you do need that extra time or if it's just like part of you, just like a fear, fear based. Thank you for that. That's so helpful. If you don't mind, I'm going to jump into a listener question for you sure. from Maria Oglesby from our community. And she asked this in our private Facebook group. She said, I'd be curious to know how Grace plots a character knowing it's a prequel to something that already exists. Does she try to plot out her character's arc so that the place her character ends in is close to where the main story starts? What specific things about the character does she keep in mind and what restrictions does it have on her creative freedom? I know we touched a bit on this already, mm -hmm. but anything the way that she asked, the way she phrased her question might pull something out. Yeah, and I do end the arc close to where the movie begins. I did not find it very constricting at all. Before I start any book, I usually do know the end. First, I usually in the beginning, I know maybe a couple scenes in the middle, but I always know the end. And when I'm writing, I'm always trying to get to that ending, whether it's the character or the plot or anything like that. And so um, knowing where I wanted them to emotionally end up right from the get-go was not, uh, did not feel constricting to me. What's one thing that's really exciting you in your work right now? I'm finally thinking about writing a new novel. The 2016 election really threw me for an emotional upheaval. So I actually had to take kind of a, a time off from novels. And I actually turned to doing picture books and writing and illustrating picture books for the past couple of years. But I'm finally, after this Mulan novel actually pushed me towards writing novels again. And I feel like I'm finally ready to write my own again, too. Oh my gosh, that's so exciting. Um, <laughs> congratulations. And what is the proudest moment in your career? So my book, A Big Moon Cake for Little Star, is a picture book, and it features my daughter. So one day at the end of the year, I was going through my daughter's homework. It was like, what's your favorite book? And she had written, my favorite book is A Big Moon Cake for Little Star because I'm in it and my mama made it. <laughs> oh my God, how cool is that? And how about, have you been to any writer's retreats that you can recommend for listeners to check out for themselves? Sure. I really love the Highlights Foundation. I mean, like I said, I write mainly middle grade novels and I illustrate picture books as well. Uh, and I find the Highlights Foundation has a lot of great workshops. But what I really love is they have is an unworkshop. And that's actually where you just go 
and they give you like a little cabin and all you do is sit there and you just write and write, you make your own schedule, anything you want. And you just, but you go to the cafeteria or like the lodge for food and the food is really, really good. So like your food is taken care of and it's just like you, you write in isolation. That's actually where I was able to finish the Mulan novel <laughs> because I need to go away from the family with the food taken care of and everything. It's just like, all you have to worry about is writing, you know, and it's really great. And the internet is there's internet, but it's really slow. <laughs> so it's just the right speed. Whereas if you really need to look something up, you can look it up, but not enough where you're going to be like streaming. You can do it pretty much any time. Uh, you could just go to schedule and they'll say unworkshop days available. And there's like, you'll see there's so many days and basically you can just choose week or choose three days, choose five days. I remember I was there for like five days and I was like I need two more days <laughs> they're like oh. oh wow that sounds so nice and do you mind me asking what state this is in it's in Pennsylvania it's like way in the country there's lots of deer and like <laughs> thank you so much for sharing that again that will be listed in your show notes page and also what are some small manageable steps that you would advise writers to take every week towards accomplishing their writing goals I'm not good at turning off the internet but that would be advice that I would say do as I say and not as I do <laughs> But I think really what it comes down to is that we've all kind of had this idea that you have to suffer in order to make really great work. And I kind of push back on that idea. And I feel like that you do your best work when you yourself are well balanced and happy and healthy. So my advice would be, you know, make sure you take some time out of your day to do some exercise, get a walk to live your life because... Otherwise, you don't have anything to write about if you're not living, you know, so that's small things like wake up in the morning, go for a walk, you know, <laughs> like spend some time with your kids, you know, like things like that. Do all the things that you need, but definitely, definitely carve out time for your writing. But don't forget to, to do all those other things, too. This is a very super important question for our listeners. Many of them have put that, you know, finances are a goal that they have for yeah. the new year, saving more or earning more. Mm -hmm. Do you have any advice that you can share from your own personal experiences or even hearing from friends who are in the creative field on, I guess, surviving and also providing a, a life for yourself where you can, yeah. you know, live comfortably, not like extravagantly, but just comfortably, but still make art and express yourself. Yeah. There's two things I want to say. First is that I am the sole breadbringer of my family. My husband is a stay-at-home dad. We have one child and everything is basically supported by my writing. Sorry, and public speaking. I'm not telling you that to brag, but I'm telling you that to tell people that it is possible. I think sometimes we get here. So we hear too many stories. We hear the stories of the people who are like rock stars, superstars who have islands, you know, like, you know, and then we hear the stories of people who just are struggling, struggling and haven't been able to make it. But I want to tell that to sh show that you can still make a living Sure, I'm not going to be able to buy a second house. <laughs> you know, like I'm not going to be able to buy an island anywhere or anything like that. Like I'm not rolling, but it's a secure enough living for our family. You know, like that's incredible. You are the sole sole provider of everything. Yes. Wow. So I'm the sole provider, and you know, it hasn't been easy, and it's but it's been so worth it. But I also wanted to make sure people understand that it is possible. And I have many friends who do the same thing too, you know, so like, it's possible you just don't hear about us because we're so busy working. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. 
Can you give any advice on how you and your significant other had that conversation with each other about you being okay as the artist, being the sole provider? I have a very unusual situation in terms of my husband. <laughs> uh, so my first husband passed away from cancer. My current husband is actually my second husband. And uh, when we got married, I was pretty well established in my business. So I think it's a little, it's a little bit harder if you're just start, like if you have a partner and you're just starting out, you know, like that, I completely sympathize. Like that is a difficult conversation. <laughs> because, but because we came together when I was pretty much established, and it's also his personality too. Like he's, I don't want to say he's not ambitious, <laughs> But, you know, there's people who kind of want to be in the background, you know, like who yes. prefer that kind of yes, life. Yes, he's happier there. He's happier in the background. He's much happier. Like he doesn't really want to deal with people. He doesn't want to go into an office or anything like that anymore. You know, like, so it was kind of like, if we get together, this is what we'll do. And he'll be like, yeah. <laughs> you know, like, so, um, I mean, not that it was easy. I mean, I think we still had a lot of, especially when we had our child, you know, it was a lot of figuring out our roles, figuring out like, okay, so he's in charge of all this childcare. Like, and, I, and honestly, it was harder for me to give up, you know, cause I have, I also, you know, I'm a part of the product of a society and the, it always feels like the mom should be, you know, should be mama, you know, like for me to kind of relinquish a lot of those kind of like mommy things, you know, where it was, was difficult, it wasn't easy, but having that kind of conversation actually was not the hard part. The, the implementing it was probably more the hard part for me. It's not easy. I mean, I travel quite a bit for the speaking and the book tours and my daughter goes to him for most things, you know, and like that kind of, sometimes that like kills me, you know, like, you know, she'll fall, like when she was younger, she'd fall down. He's like, Oh, Papa, Papa. I'm like, I'm right here. I can get you a bandage. She's like, Papa, you know, like, <laughs> you know, there's a lot of things that, are not easy. But at the same time, I think that it's worth it. I mean, I feel like I'm showing my daughter a role model of like a woman who gets care, you know, like, so, yes. and he's showing her a role model of a nurturing male, you know, so yes. I feel good about it. But that's not to say it hasn't, it hasn't had its difficulties. <laughs> right. I, this is inspiring. So inspiring for me to hear. Do you guys have the conversation of like, I create best from these hours and I need that space? Or do you have a co-working space to go to? Or do you go often to retreats then to make sure you continue producing creative work? So then it helps to also continue providing for the family. Like it's a very necessary schedule that you should yeah. have. So basically, I have a, the third floor of our house. We've changed into my studio. So I have a very odd schedule where like, I actually like go to sleep with my daughter like at 8. And then I wake up at around 4 in the morning. And then I work the wee hours or I'll go for a walk depending on if the sunshine, like in the summertime, I could go for a walk <laughs> or yeah. I'll even, or if I'm feeling very motivated, I'll go to the gym, but that doesn't <laughs> happen that often, but once in a while it does. And then I get back in time to help her get ready to go to school. And then he brings her to school. And then basically the rest of the days I concentrate on my work. But I mean, the problem is work is so much of it is admin stuff and busy work and scheduling and you know like right. <laughs> so the creative work it, it, it's hard to to make sure that you make the time to do like my husband gives me a lot of time and space to do my work the problem is making sure that the work that I focus on is the creative work. <laughs> 
But I do end up going to retreats quite often, usually before deadlines, because like when the push comes to shove and like, because when my daughter comes home from school or her after, you know, like I try to really be a part of it because when I, when I am home, because I really am gone quite often for speaking and things like that. So it's a hard balance. This is amazing to also hear that you go multiple times to retreats throughout a year, because usually all I hear is like, wow, like one retreat is already like so over and beyond for most people. Like, oh my gosh, what a treat. But then hearing like, no, this is a part of my working process. I have to go to multiple a year. Cause I'm like, I rarely ever hear people saying they go to multiple. So for me, I'm already feeling guilty thinking, oh, I would love multiple retreats throughout the year, you know, but then hearing you saying that that is a necessary requirement to meet deadlines, it releases the stress and it it allows (laughs) me to be like, oh, okay, maybe that's what I need to do to create, you know, like I shouldn't feel bad about that. Yeah, I mean, without the retreats, I could never finish a book. Wow. Oh my gosh, Grace, this is amazing. Do you do you ever create your own retreats with your friends? Like you rent out an Airbnb. Like I've I've interviewed some people who are like, yeah, I'll just grab a bunch of my buddies and then we'll just pay for an Airbnb for like a weekend and then we fly out, meet up there. We'll just chip in and the food, grab pizza, whatever. Like, is that ever a thing? Or you'd rather just go to something that's completely set up, less organizational uh, logistics that you have to worry about, and then just get to work. I really love the, like I said, the highlights on workshops. So, so like they have many cabins. So what we, what I've done in the past is I'll call up a co- bunch of friends or I'll email a bunch of like, I'm going to go on retreat here. Does anybody want to come with? And usually there's at least two or two or one or two or sometimes five of my Incredible. friends will be like, yeah, that sounds great. And then we'll all go at the same time. And it's awesome because we all have our own cabins. We all know that we're here to work, but we all get together at the same, like, okay, we'll meet at 12 for lunch, you know, like we get together and then we sit and then we talk, you know, and yes. the evenings we talk. So it's, it's the most ideal way for me to have a retreat. Like it's a really, like we're really working, you know? <laughs> oh my gosh. I love that so much. Oh my goodness. It is my dream to one day make earn enough money to own property and build cabins so I could invite (laughs) writers over and just have a retreat like that would be so lovely like I would love to just provide for you writers and like do the cooking and like yeah have the tea ready like check in like you need anything like you want a blanket like you know that is my dream like oh my gosh that'd be so fun oh my gosh nice see like like that's not like my dream. <laughs> my dream is to like go on it, but not to like do that. <laughs> oh my gosh, this is perfect. I'm great. I'm so happy that we met then. So I will keep you posted in the future. Maybe check back in another 10 years. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> oh sure. <laughs> oh my gosh. Listen, before we head off, please let everyone know what is any like uh, favorite craft book or like TV shows or movies. So I think that the book that I would recommend. It's not a craft book, but I think that if you read it, it will help everything by Brene Brown. It's called The Gifts of Imperfection. She's got another one called like Daring Greatly. I feel like after I read those books, all of a sudden it's like this idea of embracing your vulnerability and it was also this idea of like the only way you can bring happiness to other people is for you yourself to be happy. And as creatives, that means giving ourselves the space and the time to do our creative work without the guilt. And that's how we're going to be happy. And that's the only way we can help other people to be happy. And it's like, that was a real revelation for me. And it just, 
is such a helpful way to be a creative person in this world without feeling like you have to suffer, you know? <laughs> yes. Oh my gosh. Tell everyone where they can find you online. I know you're really busy producing <laughs> work, but anytime that you do end up, you know, popping online to say hi to everybody, let them know where they can best find you. Let's see. Okay. So I post most often, you'll see lots of pictures of my daughter and her artwork and occasionally my work at Instagram. My Instagram ha handle is Pacey Lin, but most people find me on my Facebook page, which is Facebook slash author Grace Lin. And most people also find me at my Twitter handle, which I don't do. I'm not on that often, but that's also at Pacey Lin. I also have a podcast. I have a long history with my editor. We were actually childhood friends. I grew up to become a children's book author and illustrator. She grew up to be a children's book editor. Uh, she is actually the vice president at Hachette Books, uh, Little Brown Books. What? <laughs> So we have a podcast together called Book Friends Forever, and that's perfect for anybody who is trying to navigate their life in the uh, children's book community and uh, or middle grade community because we talk about both sides, like navigating our life on the author side and as on the publishing side. And there's lots of secret tidbits that she gives too. And that wraps up my conversation with Grace Lynn. Grace, I had such a great time chatting with you. Your work as a storyteller is inspiring, and I'm grateful we had the chance to share your personal story with our community. Storytellers, thank you for hanging out and listening in. As always, please be sure to stop by and say hi to Grace on Instagram and Twitter at Pacey Lynn. To find all the resources and books mentioned in her episode, along with tweetable quotes and the timestamps of highlights throughout our entire conversation, head on over to Grace's show notes page at 88cupsoftea.com slash grace dash Lynn. And remember the segment we aired at the very top of this episode featuring critically acclaimed author and two-time Edgar Award finalist Lamar Giles? Be sure to pick up your copy of his newest novel, Not So Pure and Simple, which just released this week on January 21st. Like we discussed in his segment, his book takes on toxic masculinity and has already received blurbs from Dear Martin author Nick Stone, who calls Not So Pure and Simple realistic, hysterical, I couldn't put it down. Storytellers, show some love and support for a fellow writer and be sure to pick up your copy of Not So Pure and Simple wherever books are sold. Have a super productive week and I'll catch you not next Thursday, but the one after that. 